0: You're listening to Liberation News, the newspaper of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. It's, it's, it's Black History Month. I think the flyer for this was about black radical history. There's many different things that can be said about black liberation. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to focus really on a few specific historical periods and examples that I don't think get looked at enough, but you know, I've been reflecting a lot on the black liberation movement and and black history in the context of this black identity extremism piece, especially over the past year, I had the opportunity to do an interview uh, with Eddie Conway, the former Black Panther on the Real News, which hopefully is coming out soon, and we were talking a little bit about this black identity extremism, and it's just interesting to see the context of, of this becoming a big issue at the same time that... There's a marked increase in white supremacist terrorism as well, and at a time where you have—I don't know if you've even heard of them—this group called Adam Waffen, uh, which is like a hardcore Nazi terrorist group. They've—I mean, I do not know—I've only recently become aware of them, but in just the last like nine months, they've already been linked to four murders or attempted murders, and had several of their members arrested with huge amounts of explosives, one of whom had a portrait of Timothy McVeigh on his mantle, so that gives you a sense of where their mentality is. Uh, and in that context, you have the Justice Department You know, not only refusing to call these people uh, terrorists, and they have their own explanation, which is not relevant here, um, but also ending the program, the one program they had, that allegedly was designed to address white youth who may be misguided and joining Nazi groups. And... So why at a time where there's obviously a rising threat from these white supremacist groups, there's a seems to be a concerted attempt actually on the part of the federal authorities to downplay that, where in the context of the black identity extremism thing, which is allegedly about the movement for black lives, which allegedly is an incubator for terrorism, um, without any real threat knowledge or anything like that. I mean, they try to you know, use the Micah X. Johnson situation in Dallas, but what's notable about Micah X. Johnson and the general and, uh, gentleman in Baton Rouge who shot those cops is that they were essentially lone wolves who were actually not a part of any organization and explicitly sort of doing what they did uh, because they had a sort of a different view from, I would say, the broad mass of people who've been doing things in the movement for black lives. And that's not to slight them, but it's just to say that it's an interesting juxtaposition. Um, and so it just made me think in general about black history and why historically there's such a fear amongst ruling elites in America about black revolts and black uprising and black rebellion. You a lot of people didn't like this cover, but the, my favorite New Yorker cover ever is the one right after Obama got elected with him and Michelle in the Oval Office, and he's dressed like Osama Bin Laden, and she's like Kathleen Cleaver. Uh, and a lot of people thought it was racist or whatever, but I thought it encapsulated how a huge portion of white America related to the idea of someone like named Barack Hussein Obama, uh, a black person, emerging from the sort of black political milieu of Chicago, how they felt, like this sort of weird mix of radical, communist, Islamic, somewhat foreign-seeming terrorism, you know what I mean, this sort of weird view. And I just always found it interesting because black people have always been and continue to be a distinct minority inside of America. So it just seems that there's a significantly outsized fear about black rebellion in the country. And that's sort of what I wanted to to talk about today and, and highlight a few historical periods because I think that the real reason for that And I think certainly history overall bears this out, is that given how central quote-unquote racism is to the United States of America, I think it's really difficult to actually conceive of a world without racism or even moving beyond it without trying to conceive of a radically different way of living in our society. And I think we've seen you know, so much progress in some ways, but so little progress in other ways that even now, maybe more than ever, uh, the difference between what could be uh, and what we have right now, I think, is is such a deep chasm. And I think that the dreams, especially of, of, of radical black freedom movements, are so often not only complementary to, but oftentimes the vanguard of broader efforts to change the world. I think it makes sense when you think about how do we actually move beyond racism and you have to think about living in a totally different way, that as it concerns other problems and other things that exist in our society, that I think really thinking in a real way of how to solve them also means thinking in a radically different way. It makes sense that these things can often move in the same stream. So I wanted to just talk about really three specific moments in history here. Uh, are you worried that the light keeps going off and on? Don't worry about it. Um, this is like uh, it's like a slow strobe light effect. <laughs> the, the club vibe is you know, going for uh, You know, I wanted to start, too, at perhaps maybe the very beginning, early colonial America. And it, it's, it's interesting to look at because early colonial America was Sort of a hodgepodge in terms of who was there and what they were there and what they were originally trying to do. Uh, most of the original colonial settlements, uh, both the royal settlements and the uh, uh, religious, those fleeing religious persecution, quote unquote, were more or less failed settlements. The, the ones sort of up north, the Mayflower-esque ones, had a little bit more vibrancy to them, same with Maryland and Pennsylvania and places like that, because they had a reason why people were coming there, which is that they were fleeing what they viewed as the inability to exercise their religion on the continent of Europe. But in Virginia, especially in North Carolina, and well, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, all kind of the same thing at that point, uh, very little success, very little was going on, and then a guy named John Rolfe figured out that you could smoke tobacco, and if you did, it would get you high. And he took it to Europe. And I don't think you'll be surprised, a lot of people like to get hot. Um, and so, nevertheless, tobacco became the first cash crop. Everyone wanted it. Uh, then, subsequently, rice and indigo became a lot larger in the Carolinas. And so, all of a sudden, you have this Chesapeake area uh, that was really vibrant, making a lot of money. People were coming there, but it was still, again, kind of a hodgepodge. You have indentured servants who were coming uh, from different areas of, of Europe. And it's worth remembering now, too, that you know, some of these people were prisoners. There also was the long history of basically virtual enslavement of the Irish, uh, where actually a lot of the sort of slave-breaking techniques were originally pioneered in like 12th, 1300s uh, in Ireland, and some uh, even after and before that. And so you had people who were sort of coming from that experience. you had people fleeing from religious things. So you had a pretty decent supply of white labor that was coming. And in the context of indentured servitude, which is long periods of time, uh, it was more or less what you needed. The first Africans come in 1619, and there's a sort of a weird judicial nature. No one really knew quite exactly what was going on. There was some forms of slavery that were not sort of racially exclusive yet. There is indentured servitude, but in these early areas, there were a lot of Africans who became free. Uh, were able to own land. Actually, uh, there's actually a surprisingly amount in this area, the Maryland area. Uh, southern Maryland area, long history of black land ownership that was wiped out in the early 1700s. People could own guns, uh, and they could also testify in court. So the things that for the vast majority of, both, of American history up until 1964, black people couldn't really do. They could do all of these different things. So there was no real sort of racially consolidated labor system. The term white as like a marker of, of different social hierarchy, and law didn't really start to appear until the 1880s in Jamaica, I mean, 1680s in Jamaica, uh, the 1690s uh, in uh, uh, Virginia when it was actually used in a law that was designed to forbid interracial marriages between uh, black and Native men and white women, uh, which also gives you some sense of it. But I I say all that just to say that there was also quite a bit of social solidarity in this sort of unconsolidated system. You know, Edmund Morgan, who's a famous historian of this, you may have heard this quote, it's a relatively famous quote at this day and age, uh, stated that servants and slaves ran away together, stole hogs together, got drunk together, and it was not uncommon for them to make love together. And I think that in, in many ways this was all perhaps most brought to a head in 1676 with Bacon's Rebellion. Um, it's kind of a complicated, long history. There's a lot to it. Uh, for years, this was sort of a, something that was held up by radicals, but there is a strong sort of anti-native feeling of it. But Vincent Harding was a black historian whose book, I would say, uh, There is a River, uh, is a must-read book if you care about black history, described Bacon's Rebellion thusly scores of blacks joined a motley group of white indentured servants, unemployed workers and other lower class and not so lower class whites in Virginia's closest approximation to a large scale class based insurrection. And it was right after that was put down when sort of the potentiality for something very different than the colonial elite plantation labor system that was developing uh, starting to come to the fore because you've got a situation where not only are natives moving away but you have early maroon colonies where slaves are moving joining with natives you have white indentured servants who are able to run away and also join them so a lot of uh initial danger if you read the history of the times the 1670s and the 1680s especially in virginia maryland north carolina were considered dangerous times in terms of how much social turmoil there was and it was after bacon's rebellion that as one historian put it towards the end of the 17th century there occurred a marked tendency to promote a pride of race among the members of every class of white people to be white gave distinction of color even to the agricultural servants whose condition in some respects was not much removed from that of actual slavery. And accompanying that came a number of laws that were passed that had one aim, as the governor of Virginia put it at the time, to fix a perpetual brand upon free Negroes and mulattoes. And I wanted to start with that because that's really sort of the incipient reality of racism in America, Uh, certainly how the very specific system that we have now started to come into being and a little bit of why. But most importantly, because I think, and this was the point I was trying to make in in the beginning and that I want to continue to highlight here is you can see that the imposition of racism as a value, as a social system, uh, and as a form of domination and oppression was directly linked to the needs of elites to secure their labor system. And that the idea of, of Africans who had come across these shores, who had to really redefine what it meant to be free, right? I mean, you know, from the very beginning of slavery, there were slave revolts. There are many, many stories of Africans rising up before the ships left the coast of Africa. And in that context, what you're trying to do is relatively simple, right? Uh, You're trying to get back to where you came from, you can still see it, it makes sense, right? Uh, In the middle passage, again, any number. In fact, you know, the main routes of the Middle Passage, sharks would follow behind the ships because so many dead people were pushed over and there were often so many revolts they'd have to kill a lot of slaves to stop them from rising up. Uh, So it was so many that literally the sharks would follow the ships because they knew they would get something to eat just by following them along there. But I, I make all that point that the dream of these people in this country which was very different there's no real hope of going back, right, at this point in time. Like that's beyond the pale, so you have to come up with some new form of existence. And in the context of the indigenous people, there is at least the incipient idea that perhaps there could have been a a more solidaristic type of society that could have developed in, in different ways. It's an interesting historical question, but again, I just wanted to highlight that, how the dreams of black freedom were intimately tied up with the dreams of all people who were oppressed to have some form of freedom and to live a different sort of way. Hence it was so dangerous, and hence why they had to set up this system of racism to make all white people feel like they had some stake in this system uh, vis-a-vis the most exploited who were the slaves, who obviously had the ability to open up these new vistas. So the next period I wanted to talk about, which I think in some ways might be the most controversial if you know about history, but I think it's one of the most... In my view, misunder I don't know about misunderstood, misframed periods, but I think it makes the point well, uh, and that's the populist movement in the 1880s and the 1890s. Uh, populism is now a bad word. I know that's like Donald Trump, right? That's populism. Uh, not 100 percent sure how that actually happens, uh, but you know, it, it is what it is. But the populist movement. Well, maybe it requires a little context. I mean, to understand the populist movement, you got to understand the Civil War. You have to understand a little bit about Reconstruction, right? So after the Civil War, you have these Reconstruction governments. The Republican high command, if you will, during the Civil War was basically, I think you could summarize it down to Northern Capitalists. A little more complicated than that, but I think that's a fair way to do it. And their whole goal post-Civil War was to A, be able to start to exploit some of these areas industrially. um, Mines, for example, uh, the the lumber industry, the steel industry, and so on and so forth, that was one. Two, to build a lot more railroads, internal canals, and things like that to be able to more appropriately uh, exploit the lands of the West that were now, especially with the opening of the Pacific Ocean, becoming a, a new economic engine, and also to open up broader parts of the South to uh, labor exploitation. So like in the northern part of, say, Alabama, we have mostly small farmers, extremely isolated during the Civil War, uh, even from people right around them, You know, maybe 50 miles away, uh, almost no contact at all. And so to be able to sort of exploit that and turn those also into cotton producing areas and other cash crops and food and things that existed like that. So that was basically their goal. And they had to give black people the right to vote and some role in the government because that was the only way they could secure the South after the Civil War, because immediately after the Civil War, the slave owners were trying to find any possible way to come back, so they had to establish a military government uh, led by black people that gave a huge mass base to the Republican Party and the ability to control the southern governments. But that being said, uh, they got control relatively quickly. So already by 1872, Civil War ends in 1865, uh, the Republicans are stepping back, right? Because what they realized pretty quickly was that Whatever else you want to say about slavery and whatever obstacles it may have thrown up to the development of capitalism, that Southern agriculture is extremely, is, continues to be, and was extremely profitable, uh, Continued. Extremely profitable. It was the basis of the rise of Wall Street profits, of the insurance industry, of the shipping industry, uh, quite frankly of the lumber and the labor industries uh, as well in a conjunctive way. So you can see that really the, the cash crops that were produced in the South were a huge pivot in the overall world economy and worth quite a bit of money to many different people. So once you were less worried about the slave owners coming back and a renewed guise uh, and bringing back a system that you wouldn't necessarily want to see, that could put some lo- roadblocks in there, the one thing that became really clear is you had to find a way to control black people. Because if you didn't control black people's labor, you wouldn't be able to return to the plantation system. And if you didn't return to the plantation system and instead, say, gave everyone 40 acres and a mule, uh, you could have an economy, but a very different type of economy, and not a rising monopoly capitalist economy that was based off of exploiting these cash crop industries to drive a global economy, a very different type of way of living. So, highly problematic, which is why no reconstruction governments did redistribute the lands a different question. We can talk about that in the discussion, I guess. Uh, and why black people were forced into sharecropping. You know, most people, we think of sharecropping as bad, but at that time, it was actually viewed as good by most black people because it was viewed as a form of land ownership, and it was a sign that they weren't able to be fully reduced back to slavery. So it was kind of a halfway house between slavery and, and real free labor and land ownership. But that being said, all these things start to come into play. Uh, so by the time you get to the 1880s, the 1890s, you have a lot of issues. You have you know, for farmers, for black people, you have a lot of issues, one, just in terms of the reapposition of Jim Crow uh, or Jim Crow-like policies and many different other things. But black farmers, workers in the South, as well as white farmers and white workers in the South were heavily affected by an economic downturn. Uh, credit was extended to them, but on really bad terms and a really un uh, uh, regulated way, so people were really deep in debt. Their policies of the government put the government a lot in debt, which meant people's taxes went up. The railroad speculators would just buy up huge swaths of lands a lot of times alongside these railroads and then sell them back to people at highly inflated prices, which meant that there was a unnecessary land hunger. So what you start to see is the, the base of the two parties, Democrats and Republicans, break, start to break apart, right? So Democrats were the party of white supremacy essentially. And their pitch to whites who were not rich plantation owners was basically like, we are going to keep you in a better position than blacks. But here you have a situation where their white farmers especially, but also workers' living situation is rapidly deteriorating. And the what was came up as the Southern Farmers Alliance came up with this idea called the sub-treasury plan. So instead of like the merchant in the closest town to you giving you credit or some banker in Charleston or something like that on really bad terms, the government would start to give out all of the credit to farmers and also govern basically the way the crops were distributed to prevent people from A, falling into debt and to prevent speculators from uh, using their position in control of the warehouses where everything built up uh, to help more heavily exploit the people. Democrats would not support the sub Treasury plan. So a number of these white I don't want to say necessarily poor whites, but close to it, um, then became disaffected from the the Democratic Party. On the Republican side, you have a different issue, which is that black people allied with the Republicans, thinking, well, this will protect our right to vote and our right to participate. And that just really quickly was not the case. Uh, It became very clear to them right off the bat that the Republicans had no interest and empowering the vast masses of black people to own land or to become economically self-sufficient uh, or even to protect some of the first all-black towns where people had bought their land freely and fairly and were having it stolen back from them. These Reconstruction governments were primarily not doing that. Uh, and then also you had a situation where the rise of of Republicans nationally created a lot of space, a lot of federal positions, right? So there was a really small subset of like black professionals and others who could get these positions from Republicans. So it meant that they didn't really care about the broad mass of people. So it also created a new vacuum for the leadership of black people who were sharecroppers, who were workers in the new industries and the like to start to become more politically active. And they formed something at the same time as the Southern Farmers Alliance called the Colored Farmers Alliance, Same basic deal, same basic plan, Uh, it's actually larger than the Southern Farmers Alliance, at one point it had just over a million members. Uh, The populist party had something called the St. Louis plan, which was uh, what they all adopted with a bunch of radical type of proposals centered on the sub-treasury plan. But I said all that just to say that it's an interesting piece because obviously black populists understood what was going on here. Uh, they were on the one hand in a position, so you have these two alliances, neither of them have either two political parties, both subsets of mass, of the masses of people feel very betrayed by their sort of elite friends that they thought were going to help them out, right? So they realize they can come together, and it makes a lot of sense why, say, the Colored Farmers Alliance would agree to that, because first and foremost, They had the same problems, by and large, economically, and so therefore, the populist plans made a lot of sense to them. But also, the only way for the populists to succeed was for black people to be able to vote. And the one thing that plantation owners tried to do, really starting in like 1870, Three, really, I mean, even a little bit before that, was constantly attack the ability of black people to vote and do everything possible to stop them from voting. And if they couldn't stop them from voting, uh, just rigging the elections, right? Or saying, if you vote for someone I don't want you to vote for, I'll kick you off. My plantation, or I'll stop lending you need credit, or you won't be able to use my farm implements, and the likes are just rank intimidation, and of course, terrorism, right? Just open racist terrorism. So uh, the only people who were willing to defend the black people's right to vote were populists, because it was a life or death struggle for them. Uh, the only way they could survive was to try to leverage this, these gains that they they were able to have there. They started something called the uh, Southern, the Southern Ballot Rights League. Uh, they also had something called the Gideon Bands. Now, the Southern Light Rights League was like an open organization that was about promoting the right for everyone to vote, but especially in the Black Belt South. So if you were going down there to advocate for this, you were basically marked with death. So the Gideon Band was a secret armed group of black and white populists in Alabama principally, but other places that would wage like a tit-for-tat guerrilla warfare against the Klan and the white supremacist terrorists to protect the right of people to vote. Uh, Black populists would carry guns to the polls to protect themselves and other people. So it gives you a sense of how deep it was, but how important it was uh, to them in so many different ways. You know, in, in 1892, just before the Alabama gubernatorial campaign, which you know, it's an interesting campaign, but maybe the high tide of black and white unity. The leader of the populist in Mobile, Alabama said to uh, the assembly of black voters, he said, I'd rather see every river and creek in Alabama lined with crimson with blood than to see you deprived of the privilege of voting. And I think you can add to that if you want, in 1898, which known as the Wilmington Massacre, uh, really was an armed coup where a fusion repu- black Republican populist government was overthrown in an armed coup by a racist band called the Red Shirts, and the government was just replaced uh, in a coup. Uh, they killed, I think, 150, 200 people. It was all started because a guy named Alexander Manley, who is a, uh, uh, owned the one black newspaper there, he wrote a column that was, because there was all this stuff about how black men are raping white women. And he basically was saying that this is a false image of black people, this is a racist image. He said the history of slavery and the history of white men raping black women. And then he said, and there also are consensual relations between white and black people sexually in our society, and that's okay too. Uh, And so all the seeds were there for a racist mob. They whipped it up, they killed hundreds of people, they replaced an elected government because it refused to move off of the idea that... Sort of black people and poor, average, everyday people could form their own government in a way that could benefit them, not the super-rich, planner class of people. So, I mean, you know, look, there are many different ways to interpret this, and I think that one thing that's important, though, is that the way populism is often described in American history, not often, all the time in American history, it's a time where black people rose up, where some white people allied with them, and then the white people turned around and betrayed them and stabbed them in the back. and that's true and it's not true, right? I mean, certainly when you go down the line, many populists subsequently became white supremacists but what's always left out of this story is how there was this whole 10 or 15 year period where all these radical people, uh, and in the South too, the Knights of Labor, which is a big labor organization, starts to join with the populists, they played a big role in supporting majority black miner strikes in the northern part of Alabama, lumber worker strikes that were majority black at the time really talking about how do they build a totally different world for farmers and workers than the one that the big capitalists in the big city wanted them to build, and made a lot of progress towards it. In fact, maybe a shockingly large amount of progress towards it, given the deep, unbelievable history of racism. I tried to pull a quote for this, and I couldn't do it because I was... Well, I had not obtained the document correctly, and so the internet shut me down. Um, But it's a a great quote from a a white populist leader who shows up at a meeting and puts his arm around a black guy uh, to make a point to the integrated assembly and goes on this whole thing and he said, we do the same work together, we live in the same type of houses, but, and he just answered by saying, we even smell just the like. Uh, and so, I mean, this is like a pretty rare thing when, you know, even the word social equality, like the racist mixing, was easily something that could bring down a serious, you know, almost warlike situation in almost any area of the South. Uh, It's remarkable to me that the populists succeeded to the extent they did, and I think it's even more notable that they had to drown it in blood and steal all the votes. I mean, you look at that 1892 Alabama election, and you go to the Black Belt, and for some reason, there are huge numbers of black people voting for segregationist plantation owners. Interesting. In 1892, in New Orleans, the populace weren't allowed any election commissioners. And so they actually got fewer votes in the mayoral election than they had people at their convention nominating the candidates. Uh, now, some people would say, oh, they weren't popular. But I think you look at they had no election commissioners. You look at everything else. in Alabama and the Black Belt, the newspapers that were all run by plantation owners, would openly say after the 1894 election, they openly said, yeah, we rigged the vote. Well, of course. Uh, and and we're not afraid that they have the ability to say it. So yet again, and I think this is the point that I, I really want to continue to hammer home. You can see how black liberation and fighting uncompromisingly for black rights was so deeply and intimately connected to any fight to how you were going to live in a completely different world than the one you did now, and that there was no way that those two things could coexist in a way that was effective uh, without recognizing the sort of commonality of interest there, as well as the particularity of interest. So the commonality of black and white farmers on those issues, and the particularity of racism and how it works out with the vote, and also with integrated offices. The populists always had all integrated offices. They often had white and black committee people, something they took from the United Mine Workers, which would always do that, uh, to show that they also believed that you deserved to have a right to leadership. So yet again, I think we can see the elites in America drowning in blood, any opportunity to live in a different way than the monopoly capitalist one they wanted to live with at that time. Um, and it's not surprising that after something's drowned in blood, completely crushed, And uh, the Democrats actually subsequently, starting in 1896, co opted half the populist program that, yeah, some white people in the context of white America would go back to white supremacy looking for relative (laughs) privilege. I actually don't think that's strange. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think what's more notable is the fact that that wasn't the case for so many people for so long and that it was so tied to such a radical program. So the last period I want to mention here is sort of the post-World War II to McCarthyism period which I think is obviously very relevant to many of us today. I think anyone who, well if you watch CNN on a regular basis, then you know the Republicans are waging a McCarthyite attack against the FBI. Um, which is just so ironic because it was the FBI that raised the McCarthyite attack against the population. But be that as it may, um, if you're perhaps a little bit more uh, circumspect in your historical knowledge, you think that Russiagate has a lot of overtones to McCarthyism. I'll leave that to you all to Parse in your own minds, <laughs> but one thing that it's actually—I think this is actually a sign of racism in America. I can't actually pinpoint other any other reason why this is the case. The history of post World War II era and of the McCarthyite period totally writes out uh, the relationship of the Black Liberation Movement to the McCarthyite drive. Which is strange, because that was one of the most central elements of McCarthyism, was stopping all mass civil rights activity, period. It was one of their biggest fears coming out of World War II. Um, And I've argued, other people have argued that, I I think you could argue that McCarthyism set back civil rights 10 to 15 years. And everything that happened in 64 and 65... I think it could have happened in 54 and 55 uh, if you had a non-McCarthyite world, but again, that's another situation. But I, I think it's, it's one, it's extremely interesting just as a period overall to note. But I mean, obviously, it's the end of a war, you have people coming back, and you have two, sort of two things going on. On the one hand, you have soldiers who are coming back and you have a large number of women who'd entered into the workforce uh, because of the war and the labor industries. So, amongst the working class writ large, there were a lot. Uh, like the most strike days ever lost in America were like 1946, 47, 48. Uh, so there was a lot of desire. You know, there was, an afford, there was a housing crisis, right? You know, people couldn't find places to live. They, so people wanted jobs. They wanted places to live. They wanted a higher standard of living. And from their point of view, there was no reason why in this extraordinarily rich country, which was not only the richest country in the world, but... Think about this, all the other rich countries have been completely destroyed. So it almost sort of like stood alone uh, and even more outlandish. And so people had higher expectations of what they wanted and certainly black people, and this again, is, is an interesting trend after the Civil War, after World War One, after World War II, after the Korean War, after the Vietnam War, uh, black soldiers come back and you know they've been fighting. So they're ready to keep fighting uh, and they're not gonna live as second class citizens in their own country, which is why almost so many, Medgar Evers uh, was in the war, uh, so many, we go on and on and on, so many black leaders who were militant were people who had backgrounds as, as veterans or in the war industries. On the other hand, though, you had the big business, right? And so think you got to remember the whole context. So you had the Depression, right? So the economy came out of the Depression in 41 because of the war industries. And in the way that you had to work the industries during the war, they had something called the War Labor Board. So The government set up something where they had representatives, the labor unions had representatives, and the capitalists had representatives. They were all supposed to get together and meet, and instead of there being strikes or whatever, they were supposed to find out what the best way to, you know, whatever. Solve the problems were without a strike, wages, whatever. It's a longer story, but nevertheless, you had sort of the first incipient military-industrial complex, and on top of that, you had the first sort of real, like, labor-management relations, right? Prior to World War II there was no labor management relations, there was class warfare. And even conservative union leaders still felt like I'm a worker, they're the bosses, even if we can work together, the interests of my people and the interests of their people aren't really on the same page. So like labor management relations, as it is now, which is like a huge field, you can go get a master's in it if you want, uh, that didn't really exist. So it was really World War II that pioneered the government and industry working together In a major way like that, and so after the war, you have all the big industries who don't want to tool down. They want to continue making a lot of money, and they also want the government to help them ensure the same type of labor peace they'd had during the war. So, you know, the thing about that is, well, there's a lot of things about that, but the biggest thing was the most aggressive unions were the most left wing, and they also happened, happened to have the most black leaders, and they also tended to be the ones that were the most for civil rights, and. So you have two big problems on your hands. You, one, just had the overall issue that the most radical, and they represented millions of people, unions, uh, and even if not whole unions, sometimes even the key aspects, like local 600 of UAW in Detroit, black-led, radical, but the biggest of all the locals in Detroit, uh, were controlled by these radical communists. And they didn't really care that the capitalists wanted to go back to, or wanted to keep the gravy train running. Uh, Their job was to... And since many of them had also recognized that segregation was being used by capitalists to divide workers, they also felt we also have to attack racism and we also have to attack segregation. And so you had this nexus of like left wing unions, the Communist Party and aggressive civil rights organizations. Right. So you had groups like Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which is a group of black women that was particularly aimed at fighting uh, the particular circumstances that black women workers faced, which is something that became a bigger deal, there's a group called the United Public Workers of America, which organized teachers and other government workers. That's why you have to be at the Hash Act. Anyone here works for the government, you know about the Hatch Act. Uh, the reason they had that was because they were having such success mobilizing public sector workers politically, but you know I, I think that it, it goes one layer deeper because you had these industries that, of course, during the war especially were able to, to bring in a lot more black women and in the context of these left wing unions uh, and the Communist Party created sort of a cultural matrix where Claudia Jones and people know Claudia Jones, the famous black communist was able to lead a uh, study, circles, and groups of black women, mainly public sector workers, uh, talking about the particular problems of black women workers in the post-World War II society, and they came up with this idea of triple oppression, which is recognizing and understanding that black women were triply oppressed as women, as workers, and as black Americans, and that understanding, and get ready for it, the intersection between those three things uh, you know, was the only way you could effectively uh, organize a lot of these industries with large numbers of black women workers, not just public workers, but tobacco workers uh, and the like, uh, and don't be surprised when you never hear anything about that when you hear about uh, intersectionality these days. But be that as it may, you, you can see in that sort of matrix, the not only the innovative things that were going on, but the major challenges that these unions and their sort of attached radical political organizations were Uh, the danger that they cause to super rich people and the elites, and that's when you get Taft-Hartley in 1947 to make it harder to strike. You also get the fact that unions had to register with the National Labor Relations Board and become essentially uh, approved by the government. Many of these organizations that were radical, Civil Rights Congress and the like, they become uh, subscribed organizations for being affiliated with communism. You know, in the late 1940s, the NAACP started putting out lawn signs that said, NAACP, not communists and telling their supporters to put them in their yard to show that the NAACP wasn't communist because civil rights was communist. That's what they said. If you're for black equality, you're a communist. And that means you shouldn't be able to have a job. And that's, that's really what was happening. People were losing their jobs. They were going underground. They were fleeing the country. People were committing suicide. Uh, all of the worst possible things you can imagine. People like Paul Robeson, the most famous person in the world, was completely crushed and destroyed as a public figure because of what he stood for. Uh, Henry Wallace, who'd been the vice president of the United States, was ruthlessly targeted uh, for just trying to run for president against Terry Truman. And you have a situation where th- this is, again, a, a major inflection point for the country. There's two ways it's gonna go. And Wallace promoted this in his, in his campaign. He said that, look, you know, labor can come together and we can build a society based on the technology and the riches that we have where everyone can have enough of what they need and maybe a lot of what they want, where we don't have to have segregation and where we can live in peace with the Soviet Union. We don't have to have perpetual war because perpetual war will only promote all the things that we don't want. And the only people who perform perpetual war, as he pointed out, were, you know, poll tax, Jim Crow reactionaries and big business owners and Wall Street executives. So why would we want to live like that? And you could see how that might be a powerful thing if the vice president, I mean, imagine if like Joe Biden said he was going to run for president in 2020 on like the PSL program. You know what I mean? That, I think you, might, you it might get a lot of people supporting it because this is something that had to be crushed. And I think that's, again, and that's the final historical point I really wanted to make there. You can see, again, that the black freedom struggle having such an important, critical, in many ways, vanguard role in helping people to imagine and envision a totally new type of society. And also, and I want to sort of end on this point, touching on, and I'm sort of We've wove this thread through here touching on why it is that this is so historically repeating itself, this sort of trend in this reality. You know, it's it's funny to me that one of the most controversial statements you can make about black people in America is that black people are a nation within a nation or a colony within America. Uh, It's considered a pretty controversial idea. Uh, it's one that's consistently rejected. It's only affiliated with radicals. It's often smeared as an idea that came from Russia, that was adopted by Black people in the 30s. that has no basis in it, and, and I'm always so amused by that because you know no one ever says that there you know there's French cuisine. Uh, there's Italian cooking, you know what I mean, like, you know what I'm saying, And, and music and culture, and no one ever says, no one ever questions whether it's an Italian nation or a French nation, when you could probably question it now in the 21st century if you wanted to, no one ever questions it, but no one will ever say that there's no such thing as black music, culture, history, or anything like that, but it's still controversial to say that there's a black nation, but I don't think it's actually controversial historically at all, you have people who are stolen from hundreds of different really nations with long histories and their own reality. They're brought to a completely alien place. They have to learn to speak languages that are not their language to communicate with each other. They have to forge a common cultural, religious, social existence in order to spiritually sustain themselves in the context of four hundred years of slavery. And that obviously has produced a very particular people, black people, which is why there's a certain type of black solidarity. Some people call it black nationalism, if you will. I I, I didn't Baraka, I think most, most of what's called black nationalism is really black patriotism. Uh, black people are happy to be black and don't agree that we are inferior beings and thus want to assert that consistently. And I think that when you look at how it played out, and that's why I wanted to start with colonial America, the genius of American capitalism and imperialism is that it set up a class system with intra class divisions based on race. So, like, even if you're in the 1% and you're black, you were almost certainly on the lowest end of the 1%, right? Uh, And it's sort of, I mean, now, that's a good place to be, I'd say, for a lot of people. But I think it gives you a sense, though, of of the genius of the system by making things appear, making oppression and exploitation appear as if it has a very different root than what it really in fact does. And by giving, creating a level of relative privilege that's enough for people to fight over, right? I mean, when, when Robert Williams integrated that pool in Monroe, North Carolina, it was like the shittiest, tiniest little pool we've ever seen. They called it the Monroe County Country Club. And that's not a, 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 a you know, there's a, there's a reason for that. You know what I mean? And I think if you look at how Donald Trump is succeeding right now, it's because he's taking advantage of the collapse of relative privilege in white America and the anger and resentment in white America against what appears to be the rise in relative privilege for non-white, Anglo-Saxon, heterosexual people. So ultimately, uh, you're able to use this in a way that Trump can use it to be the biggest plutocrat in the history of plutocrats while claiming to represent the working class. Credibly. Every newspaper in America says Trump represents the working class. You know, I mean, so he can credibly do it and it just gives you a sense where class, as a concept, has been defined racially and gives you a sense of how deep it is. And that's why the black struggle is such a a touchstone. Because when you talk about black people being free, you immediately are talking about the foundations of capitalism in America that have made them unfree. And it doesn't take a big leap to get from point A to point B, which is why the vast majority of black people who we talk about historically and culturally as heroes were people who were at least to a limited extent anti-capitalist. No surprise. Makes sense. And so ultimately, these inflection points, and why I brought them in, is I think they're major inflection points in America. The original colonial American period, the time when monopoly capitalism was being imp- imposed, and when modern US imperialism was being established. That at all three of those times, it was absolutely crucial that the black freedom movement be crushed, because it was the source, And really the strongest source and component part of the dreams of average everyday people to live in a totally different way and to be free. And that's why they're calling the Movement for Black Lives a breeding ground for black identity extremism today. Because they know that the Movement for Black Lives, whatever flaws that it has had, has unleashed in society a mass radicalization especially amongst young people that I think is very dangerous to the ruling class, very dangerous to the elites, something that I think we hope we can organize here in the PSL to become a material force to actually move this country in a more progressive, more people-centered, as opposed to profit-centered type of society. And, you know, hopefully that's what we learned from black history here in 2018. So I'm in there, and I appreciate you all. I'm sorry I took so long. I appreciate you staying uh, and coming out on what looks like it's still a very bad day. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can read more at liberationnews.org. You can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Spreaker, and other podcast platforms. And follow us on social media at PSL Web.